0: good morning to everybody. It's certainly good to be with each and every one of you this fine Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day out. Uh, And as we just sang, my job is pretty simple this morning, to just give you the Bible. That's what I'm here to do. That's what I intend to do this morning. Uh, This morning, uh, in our Bible class portion, we talked about growing in my Bible knowledge. And right along with that, I want to talk about something important, growing in my ability to resist temptation. Let me start off with an anecdote. Have you ever been washing a car in the springtime? And you know, in the springtime, when you go to wash your car, it's been through a lot of things. It's got all that salt residue on it, it's just disgusting. And you go and you get one of those big sponges out of the garage, or, or you buy one of those big sponges, and that's what you're going to use in order to clean your car. And you go and get it, and you fill up the water or the bucket with the soap and the water. And you have the brand new sponge, and you dip it in there, and you're ready to clean that car. And you go over there, and you swipe the car a few times, and then you go back over to the bucket. And what happens when you squeeze that sponge? Oh, it's the nastiest stuff coming out of it, isn't it? It's just so nasty with that salt residue in it, and it's disgusting. Well, when you soak a sponge in water or anything like that, when you press down on it, what's inside of the sponge comes out of it. And that is exactly how trials and temptations are. When Satan comes and he presses on us, it's a time to see what's going to come out. We see exactly what we've been soaking up. That's the issue. And the same principle, not the soap and the sponge per se, but the same idea was presented by Jesus and applied by our Lord Jesus. And many times, after we fail a trial, We're a temptation. We wonder how we failed so hard. How can I grow in my ability to resist in temptation? Because we know how discouraging it can be. After we've been faced with the trial of temptation, we fall short and we sin. We fail. It's a discouraging thing. If you'll take your Bibles and turn them over to the book of 1 John. 1 John 2 and verse 15. uh, John writing to some Brethren there, he calls his beloved children. Uh, 1 John 2 and verse 15. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this particular passage. 1 John 2 and verse 15. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from... The world. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. This passage tells us about three things in the world that will tempt us that is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And these are the things in the world that will tempt us. Every man and one who has ever walked the face of the earth will at some point in their lives, or already have been, they will be faced with one of these three things and eventually all three of these. These three things make a complete circle of what we're going to face here on the earth. And everyone can sympathize with the feeling of being tempted. Something before your eyes that you know you're not allowed to have. It's something that God doesn't want us to do or doesn't have us to do in the Bible. Even the garden, although she was told not to eat of the tree of knowledge, she, by Satan, was tempted to do so from the beginning of mankind. That's something everyone can sympathize with. Eve knew that feeling, just like all of us do. The idea of being tempted. We can sympathize with that feeling. And like Eve failed, I know all of us can sympathize because we too have failed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Turn your Bibles over there to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. By way of introductory, I would just want to read this passage about someone else who could sympathize. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Jesus could sympathize with those things. He understood what it was like to be tempted. He was without exception. He was even tempted in the same things that we are the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. He walked the face of this earth, and he too was tempted. But the overwhelming component is. Jesus was without sin. Temptation of Christ we find in the book of Matthew. Look over at Matthew chapter 3. First off, Matthew chapter 3, and understand the context of the temptation of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, look with me starting in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and we saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This passage is one that is daunting to students of the Bible. It's been so for ages. If Jesus had no sin, why did he need to be baptized in the first place? Why, as he said, there in verse 15, he said, Permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It was the will of his Father to show that he is truly the Son of God. We see the voice come out of heaven and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus following The will of God, just like he wants us to follow the will of God. Yet he has no sin. He's setting an example for us. But by fulfilling the will of the Father, I want us to see what happened in chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew 4 and verse 1. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, we learned, And this is interesting to me because it shows that immediately after Jesus' baptism, what happened? He was tempted. And after our baptisms, is it safe to say that we're baptized and then we're tempted immediately after? I think so. And it doesn't matter if we're old, young, or wherever we are in our spiritual lives, in our walks with God, after we got baptized, I guarantee the next day you were faced with some kind of temptation, if not the next hour. And Jesus, too, after his baptism, is faced with temptation, led into the wilderness. We can always improve in our ability to resist temptation as children of God. So I believe observing how Jesus resisted temptation is only going to aid us in our ability to resist temptation. But like we said in 1 John 2, 15-17, we saw three distinct ways that the world will try to tempt us. The lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Well, in this temptations, we see Jesus also tempted in these. So as we go through the study this morning, we're going to examine what the temptation was for Jesus and what it is for us, and then we will examine how Jesus used Scripture to combat against the temptation, as well as the original context of the passage that Jesus used. And we'll pull some things away at the end. So you'll have to follow me. But each time we see Jesus quote scripture and even Satan quote, quote scripture, we're going to go back and look at it. Which leads me to chapter 4 and verse 1. The second part I want to point out notice that Jesus was led into the wilderness. We see this being much like the wandering in the wilderness that the Israelites faced. In the wilderness, they faced various trials and temptations, being tempted and uh, on their way to the promised land. 40 days and 40 nights, the children of Israel for their 40 years, this Jesus who has also faced the same trials in the wilderness is here to further prove that He is the Son of God. And all the trials and temptations that the Israelites faced in the wilderness, Jesus now faces in the wilderness. And we will learn and see how He resisted that temptation. And in turn, we will be able to do the same. So the first thing we see is the temptation of the lust of the flesh, of course, starting in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, and after he had uh, fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The first thing, the temptation is, what is the lust of the flesh, we see Jesus being tempted by saying, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And Jesus, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, much like Moses and Elijah did on different occasions, not to mention as he's on a mountain, he becomes hungry. And the flesh of Jesus had become weak. Now, that doesn't show that he's weak in power, but his flesh had become weak. He is Son of Man. He is man on earth here it's important to remember that he is a man. And and actually, it's interesting, in the Bible, Jesus refers to himself more as son of man than he does son of God. And Jesus gave up many things to come down and be with us and be with his sheep, one of which is that he's hungry. And having fasted, he's hungry. And having had nothing to eat for his flesh, would it have been wrong for Jesus to use his power to provide food for himself? On the surface, I believe the answer is no. I don't think it would have been wrong. You look over at Matthew 14. We see Jesus uses power there. Matthew 14 and verse 15. Uh, Matthew 14 and verse 15 says, When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is so desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. and they all ate and were satisfied. And we see the miracle of Jesus feeding these thousands of people. Why, of course he used his power in order to do that. So on the surface, would it have been wrong for him to turn the stones into bread? I would suppose not. Artie France, uh, Bible commentator. Uh, Puts it this way, Jesus recognized in his hunger an experience designed by God to teach him the lesson of Deuteronomy 8 in verse 3. And we'll go to that in just a moment. Jesus is facing the same temptations of the wilderness that the Israelites did. and He's going to use Matthew 4. He's going to use these temptations as a factor to prove that he is the Son of God. And in like manner, God has designed trials and temptations For us, so that we may too learn the lesson of old to put our trust in God and serve Him, not the flesh. Therefore, the lusts of the flesh are the things that we cannot have here and now, but we are told to wait on when it is our time to go into the promised land, that is, heaven. So, the first point we see what Jesus was tempted with. Number two, we see that Jesus uses Scripture. You know, the original context of this is so important, so I'd ask you to mark with your Bible markers Matthew 4 and turn your Bibles back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 8. The passages Jesus quotes actually stem only from three chapters in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. And this first one one is in Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 8 in verse 1. It says, All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This moment takes place when Moses is addressing all of Israel as to what they should do now, and even as they enter into the promised land. Well, these things happened, it said there in verse 2, to test the Israelites. Look there at verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you. He was testing the Israelites. And in verse 3 in particular, it brings up the idea that God was feeding them manna as a test. Hang on. How is giving someone food a test? How does that make any sense? Well, there is yet another passage we need to go to in order to fully understand why Jesus used Deuteronomy 8.3 in the first place. And it comes from the book of Exodus. Turn your Bibles over to Exodus 16. Because even Deuteronomy 8 is referring back to something that happened in the wilderness. Turn over to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. And We're going to be looking at verses 2 through uh, 4 starting. Exodus 16 starting in verse 2. It says the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Aaron said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate the bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may, everyone listen, Test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. First off, when were they sitting by pots of meat when they were back in Egypt? They weren't. Second, notice that God is only giving them this manna in the first place because he is using it as a test. He said in verse 4, Gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. Now hang on a second. Like we said earlier, How can God use something like that to test them? I mean, it's food for crying out loud. How is He going to use that to test them? Well, you jump down to verse 15 of Exodus 16. It says, When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has as in his tent, the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. In verse 19, Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as, ma- as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. So we see that there were specific rules tied to the manna. Well, Hank, hey, there's rules when you're following a test, isn't there? When you're taking a t- test in school, there were certain rules you had to follow. Well, that kind of makes sense. And the fact was, they could only gather so much for their family. We go on to see that they couldn't have it at certain times of the day, etc. God gave specific rules for the Israelites to have this manna in the first place. And and when they didn't do what Moses said, it became nasty and foul. It would become gross. Verse 27 says, It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore He gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. God, in verse 28, was upset that they were not following His commands as far as the manna went. They wouldn't follow it. But when they did follow the commandments concerning the manna, everything was okay. Now let's read Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 again. Flip over to Deuteronomy 8. Let's read verse 3 one more time. We're going to work backwards to what Jesus said. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. They had to follow the word of the Lord in order to receive the manna. When they did not follow the word of the Lord, the manna would spoil. The point is clear. It wasn't the manna that they were living by. It wasn't the bread that they were living by. They lived by the word of the Lord that would then grant them the manna. Exodus 16 and verse 35 goes on to say, the sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an uninhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. You go on later in the book of Judges, and you see when the man or the book of Joshua, excuse me, and you see when the manna ceases. In other words, they were to live by the word of the Lord until they entered the promised land. Okay, they were to live by the word of the Lord until they entered the promised land by eating the manna. Do we see the application for us? We too live on the word of the Lord until we enter our promised land, that is heaven. Now go back over to the book of Matthew. And let's read this in context, knowing the verse that Jesus used, Matthew 4, verse 2. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, God command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Does it make a little more sense when we consider the context of why Jesus used that passage in the first place? Jesus, while in the wilderness, would not live on stones turned into bread. He wasn't going to do it. But Jesus was going to live on the words that proceeded out of the mouth of God. That was going to be his sustenance. And while in the wilderness, our 40 days, if you will, or when we are in temptations or trials like Jesus was, we must also live by the word of the Lord. That's why Jesus used that verse. And its I think a lot of times misunderstood why. And the last thing I'll say about that, Jesus needed to have a word from the Lord in order to do that in the first place. He was following the word of the Lord, and he did not have it. So Jesus here, using the scripture in context, understood that only he could live by God's word while he was being tempted in the desert. When we're tempted, we only live by the word of the Lord, and it's the same thing. The next one Jesus uses... uh, is the boastful pride of life, verses 5 through 7. Pick up with me in verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, so again, let's go ahead and examine what the temptation is. What is the boastful pride of life? Well, I believe at its core, the boastful pride of life means showing an irreverence for God. Living in such a way that you believe that you are a master of your own destiny. It is up to me how I live my life. It's up to me. I'm a master of my own fate. Well, we know that that's just simply not true. We we can lose our life in an instant. It happens every day without ever seeing it coming. But this temptation that Jesus is facing is that he would proudly jump off of this temple, of the pinnacle. Proudly jump off of it, knowing that God would be there to catch him and to save him, just so he can prove Satan wrong. After all, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, you'll throw yourself down. He quotes Psalm uh, Psalm there in chapter 91, the Lord is going to save you, well, this is the second time that Satan has used this ploy. Why not jump off the pinnacle? Why not jump off, Jesus, and prove that you're the Son of God? Why not do it? Well, that would be giving into the boastful pride of life. We, too, live in this kind of way sometimes. We live as if we get to decide what is best for us. But God knows what's best for us. Better not to put Him to the test in the way we live our lives. But on top of that, I think it's important we understand Satan uses Scripture, and he uses it very deceitfully. He says there in verse 6, he quotes, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's Psalm 91, not Psalm 19. Ignore that. Turn your Bibles over to Psalm 91, because I want us to notice something about what Satan uses in this Scripture. Psalm 91. Because if Satan is using Scripture, I certainly want to see whether he's right or not. Psalm 91, uh, he uses this passage to prove to Jesus, there is no way he would die. God will take care of him. After all, look what it says. Uh, In Psalm 91, for some context, look at verse 1 of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress and my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. Jump down to verse 9. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High. Your dwelling place, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give angels, con- uh, angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. This psalm is about the man who puts his trust in the Lord. It is, or does it make sense that Satan would use a passage like this? I suppose so, because it is all about putting your trust in the Lord, and if you put your trust in the Lord, nothing can happen to you. Jesus, You put your trust in God, you jump off this pinnacle, he's going to save you. That's what Psalm 91 says. So Jesus, why not jump? Well, if you'll notice something else, Satan actually misses something when he quotes this passage. Look at verse 11 with me again. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Okay, so we're missing something. In Matthew 4, when Satan quoted this, he left out that second part of verse 11 to guard you in all your ways. What would have been another way for Jesus? To not jump. It's pretty much that simple. That was the another way. He didn't have to jump. And even when he didn't jump, God's going to protect him then too if he doesn't jump. There was no reason to test God. For God would guard him in all of his ways. So why jump? Why test God? I can stay up here on the pinnacle of the temple and God will take care of me if I put my trust in him. But Satan left that part out. He didn't quote it. Jesus also uses scripture in this particular uh, instance. And after Satan misuses his scripture, by the way, just like a lot of men will misuse scripture and take some out, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. Turn your Bibles back over to Deuteronomy. Like I said, we've got to understand the context of what Jesus uses for everything. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. Let's go back there and understand it. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Well, what should we do? Let's go back to Massa. Turn your Bibles over to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, and look there with me, verses 2 through 7. Exodus chapter 17 and verse 2 says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Merabah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Once God provided water for the people in the wilderness, we see why this place is called Massa in the first place. It's because they were testing the Lord. They were asking, is God even among us? Is He even here? We'll go back over to Matthew chapter 4 and see Jesus quote this again. Matthew 4 verse 5, Then the devil took him into the holy city, and Adam stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus understood the mistake that they were making at Massa. To jump would be to ask if God was even with Jesus. Jesus knew that God was with him. Therefore, he didn't need to jump in order to prove that. In fact, I think jumping would have disproved a lot of things that Jesus was was there to prove. Jesus resisted the temptation to jump by learning from the Israelites' mistake of old, yet for the second time. And we have a common goal as well, to learn from the past mistakes of others and not fall into the boastful pride of life. Jesus went back. And he used scripture knowing the context of what the Israelites went through in order to overcome in his temptations in the wilderness. And lastly, we see Jesus is tempted with the lust of the eyes in verses 8 through 10. Pick up with me there in verse 8. Again the devil took him into a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the temptation this time, of course, what is the lust of the eyes? I believe it is clear what this was to mean. Jesus was already promised the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Of course, this prophecy, Jesus fulfilling it, being the Son of Man. My point is, the kingdoms and all their glory and their dominion would be Jesus's, anyways. However, the plan that God had installed for Jesus to fulfill this was to go to a cross in order to have these dominions. Here we have Satan offering Jesus an easier way out. Jesus, fall down and worship me. I'll give you it all. I'll give it all to you. Here we have Satan offering him an easier way, a bypass, so he can have these things. I believe this helps us understand what the lust of the eyes truly is. It is the idea of having something here and now without truly or waiting, having it within the guidelines of God's word. Jesus was to have this, but he was going to go to the cross to die for our sins in order to have it. Sometimes we go without or go out of God's guidelines to have things we're not supposed to have. What about fornication? Having sex outside of the boundaries God gave? They're only to have that in marriage. We're bypassing. This also goes for lusting after a woman. The Old Testament talks a lot about coveting after your neighbor's wife. God has a plan for us to have certain things, but sometimes we try to bypass the plan and do it our way. That leads us to sin. But Jesus was also faced with this temptation, and instead of giving in, he was able to overcome And let's examine the last way that Jesus was able to overcome that very thing. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because in order to bypass the way God would have uh, have gave Jesus all dominion, Jesus was going to have to fall down and worship Satan. He was on top of the mountain viewing the land. By the way, it's a lot like Moses was on the top of Mount Nebo viewing the promised land. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6... Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 10. It says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off of the face of the earth. At the entrance of the promised land, we see God giving final reminders to the Israelites. They they must serve him only. But verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6 is the one in particular that Jesus used. But why did God feel the need to tell the Israelites this in the first place? How about the fact that throughout the entire wilderness about, they complained about being better off in Egypt. Remember what we read in Exodus 16? Oh, we were sitting by pots of meat in Egypt. We would have just been better off there. Or how about the fact that they were constantly thinking that they were better off there, thinking about other gods, Baal, for instance, one instance when, uh, when Moses came down from the mountain, and how they would be better off somewhere else out of the hand of the Lord and out of the care of God. But God tells them here, that they must serve him. And if they don't, in verse 15, he said, I will wipe you off the face of the earth. Will you go back over to Matthew chapter 4? Let's read this one more time, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only i got a question. Did Jesus understand how serious it was to consistently serve God? To only bow down before Him? Yes, Jesus understood that. But more than anything, Jesus understood how the Israelites did not understand that. And when they were tempted in the wilderness, they failed every single time. And Jesus learned from their mistakes while he was in the wilderness. And that's why he used those verses. Jesus was able to resist temptation. Now, how do we bring it home in reference to how we resist temptation? Well, I'll try to do it the best way I know how. Number one, the Israelites sinned in the wilderness. We sin in our lifetime as well. But in the middle, you have Jesus who came And had no sin. Who showed us how to succeed. And by looking at our outline this morning, there was something in common for each temptation, wasn't there? If you take away a few of the sub-points I had, you will see something that Jesus did very consistently every time he was tempted with the same three things we're tempted with. Jesus used Scripture. Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen to verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He came to our aid by being on this earth. Resisting temptation, not sinning, and being the sacrifice for sin, the perfect sacrifice. And in turn, leaving an example as to how we can do the same thing. Psalm 119 and verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. So I know maybe I took a long way to get to this conclusion. But it's important to see why Jesus used the word of God in order to resist temptation, because that was the only way to resist temptation. So my encouragement to everyone here, like we talked about in Bible classes, to continue to grow in our Bible knowledge. And the more we grow in our Bible knowledge, the more we can also grow in resisting temptation, because using the word of God, having it at our disposal is the only way to use it. Because in Matthew 4 and verse 11, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Luke, in chapter 4, his account says that he came back, or he came at an opportune time. That's when he would come back. And although it's not recorded for us, I can guarantee you, Jesus used Scripture then too. So, like I said, my encouragement to everyone here this morning is to continue in your learning and your Bible knowledge and use it so you can resist temptation. And if you are a child of God this morning, maybe there came a point in your life where there is a point now where you have not been resisting temptation like you should, you haven't had God's word dwelling on your heart. Brethren, this is not a doctor's office. This is not an institution. This is a family here. We grow together in our abilities as Christians. So if you need the prayers of the saints, we're willing to pray with you and to help you. If you're not a child of God this morning, you've not been baptized, you've not repented of those sins and believed in the Lord like you should, you have that opportunity now or if you just simply need to know more about those things in order to become a Christian. If you are subject to the invitation in any way this morning, won't you make your way to the front as we stand and as we sing?